Today's episode is brought to you by poet, playwright, performance artist, and translator Ariana Rain's new collection of poems, A Sand Book, out June 18th from Tin House Books and available now for pre-order. A Sand Book migrates from wildfires to hurricanes, Tweety Bird to the President, Lust to Aridity, to Certification to Prophecy, and Mother to Daughter. Kim Gordon calls it mind-blowing, and Booklist's starred review says that Rain's wildly rewarding poems are connected through clarity of voice, generous irreverence, and seemingly limitless purview. It truly contains multitudes. Rain's fans have been waiting eight years for a new book, and this one is sure not to disappoint. Before we begin today's episode with Miriam Taves, I would be remiss to not mention that the last and final issue of Tin House Magazine's 20-year run is now out and available. One of the options for supporters of the show is to sign up for a back-issue bundle and receive three back-issues of the magazine. This, or a copy of Kristen Arnett's Mostly Dead Things, or Morgan Parker's Magical Negro, or Ursula K. Le Guin's Conversations on Writing, to name just a few of the gifts available. Access to the bonus audio archive as well, where Miriam Taves is adding a reading of the Coleridge poem from which she took the phrase, All My Puny Sorrows, for one of her novels. This can all be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the writer Miriam Taves. Taves has a BA in Film Studies from the University of Manitoba and a journalism degree from the University of King's College in Halifax. She's both produced radio documentaries and written for magazines and garnered the 1999 National Magazine Award Gold Medal for Humor. Taves also played the leading role in Carlos Regatta's film Silent Light, a film that took place in a Mennonite colony in northern Mexico. Silent Light was the winner of the jury prize at the 2007 Cannes Film Festival, was on many film critics' lists of the best films of the year, and is a film for which Taves was nominated for Best Actress at the Mexican Academy of Cinematographic Arts and Sciences Aerial Awards. Miriam Taves is, however, best known not for her past journalism, nor for her all-too-brief film career, but for her life as a story novelist. Taves is the author of six novels and one memoir, including Summer of My Amazing Luck, A Complicated Kindness, 
and All My Puny Sorrows. She's the winner of many of Canada's most prestigious literary awards, including the Canadian Authors Association Award, the Rogers Writers Trust Fiction Prize, the McNally Robinson Book of the Year Award, and the Governor General's Award, whose past winners include such luminaries as Margaret Atwood, Michael Andaje, and Alice Monroe. Miriam Taves is here today to talk about her latest book out from Bloomsbury entitled Women Talking. Described by Margaret Atwood as an amazing, sad, shocking, but touching novel based on a real-life event that could be right out of Handmaid's Tale, Women Talking has received starred reviews from Publishers Weekly, Kirkus, and Booklist. Lainey Zuma says of Women Talking, I am in awe of this novel. In Taves' brilliant design, eight women in a Mennonite hayloft managed to lay bare the rancid global root system of patriarchy. Their story is terrifying, joyful, gruesome, and magnetic. What a reckoning, what a gift. Madeline Tien adds, Women Talking wants another world to be possible, and in the rescripting of reality into fiction, attempts to imagine it where it has not yet grown of its own volition. The novel reminds us how difficult it is to know how to live, forgive others or ourselves, seek justice or know freedom. No matter the depth of their solidarity, we can imagine that each individual will undoubtedly spend a lifetime coming to their own answers, seeking knowledge with their own hard-won words. But we can hope that the common questions asked by women talking, in the book Women Talking, their listening, their anger and love, their sometimes vastly differing conclusions, might offer a further way of seeing and finally choosing. Welcome to Between the Covers, Miriam Taves. Thanks very much. So when we open the book, we encounter not the beginning of the novel, but an author's note. An author's note that discusses a real-life situation that your novel is an imaginative reaction to. So before we talk about the novel itself, I'd love to ground listeners around the real-life event and also your orientation to it. So perhaps we can start with um, the encounter in non-fictional form that we encounter as readers, and that inspired you to write the book. Mm -hmm. Between the years 2005 and 2009, um, the, um, the girls and women of the Manitoba colony in Bolivia, uh, named after um, Manitoba, the province um, where where I'm from and where and where these particular Mennonites came from as well, um, were and this is a so this is an ultra conservative closed Mennonite colony, and um, the 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 girls and the women were waking up um, realizing that they had been attacked um, in in some way they were they were sore they were bleeding they were they had rope marks burn marks on their wrists on their ankles um they didn't know what had happened so um and and you know these these attacks continued to happen um eventually uh the women started talking a little bit um, amongst themselves about what was happening, realizing that they weren't alone, that this was happening to virtually every woman and girl in the colony. 
Um, and so they started uh, telling some of the leaders of the colony, um, the elders, uh, who basically uh, their response was, um, no, this is your imagination, or that, you know, they, they, they used the, you know, the term wild female imagination, uh, or... Um, uh, this is the this is the work of the of the devil or of demons satan as as punishment for you know some sort of perceived sin um that the women had had committed uh apparently so they weren't believed and not only were they not believed but they were um blamed um for for these for these attacks so you know um so so they they continued until finally um as the as the reports uh, go, as the, as the story goes, as the rumors go, um, one woman or two women stayed up um, late uh, night after night after night, and and eventually caught one of the perpetrators, and then the whole thing unraveled. Others um, confessed. There were seven or eight um, men from the colony, Mennonite men, who were uh, responsible uh, for the rapes, and and. Um, and and even then, uh, you you know the the question was, uh, well, what do what do we do with these these men? Uh, naturally, uh, some of the people who had been uh, raped, the, the 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 male family members, especially uh, of these women, you know, wanted to um, uh, punish these men somehow, um, you know, seek revenge, and and um, and so basically, for the first time. Uh, the the outside the police were fo- were called were called in um, to to basically uh, you know arrest the men take them to the city put them on trial um, and sentence them and 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 so you know now the rumors within the Mennonite community are that the men are in prison um, but there are also rumors that the that the attacks are continuing. Um, uh, these colonies are self-policed, self-governed um, colonies, very isolated. Um, the women don't speak the language of the of the country that they're in. In this case, Bolivia. Um, they're illiterate. Uh, they don't leave the colony without being accompanied by by a man, a husband, a father, etc. So there's 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 nothing for them to do. They're virtual prisoners in the in these colonies, and you know, and then of course, you know, victimized over and over in this you know this culture of of control um and uh and and shame so um this is one way and again i i I go i go to lengths uh wherever i am and whenever i'm talking about this to to explain that this is one way of being mennonite these you know these these old order closed colonies ultra conservative colonies in you know in remote places um but um you know that's sort of you know one extreme uh end of the spectrum i'm a mennonite i'm I'm a secular mennonite i you, you know am literate educated live in a city for example um so you know so it's just important for people to know that 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 not all mennonites live in this you know in this manner well the vic- the victims in the real life situation they they ranged from the age of 3 years old to 65 they were married single residents of the colony and visitors and it included at least 130 women and girls uh, over the course of at least five years, who would wake up bleeding sometimes with semen or dirt or grass on them because they'd been bound and carried out to a field unconscious, facilitated by an animal anesthetic from the plant belladonna that the rapists would spray into the house so that they could take their victims and then return them. Um, tell us 
what prompted you about this story, this um, seemingly fantastical yet real story, um, why you wanted to engage with this in novel form? Mm-hmm. Um, well, what, I mean, when I heard about the, the rapes, I was horrified like everybody else, but I wasn't um, surprised. Um, I think I know other other Mennonites who are familiar uh, with, with these communities, you know, Feel the feel the same way, um, you know the the, the incidents of, of of sexual violence, of domestic assault, and and, and incest, and, and violence are, you know, and patriarchal violence specifically within these within these colonies is, is you know, they're so so sky high in terms of the numbers, um, and um, so you know this kind of horrific sort of. Um, series of, of crimes was not was not surprising given given you know that given given the culture given um the and particularly you know the the roles of of men and women within the within the community uh the entitlement of the men the 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 dehumanization of the women the inherent misogyny of the of the fund, fundamentalism that you know that they preached the interpretation of the bible um, so, so, you know, so, so again, it wasn't, um, it, it wasn't surprising. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I wanted to, um, I'm a novelist, so I, my thoughts, you know, gen- generally go towards wanting to craft some sort of narrative around this stuff that I, and, um, and I knew that I wanted to, I had so many questions, questions that were really basically extensions of the questions that I've had all of my life growing up in a Mennonite, in a very conservative Mennonite community. And here, after hearing about these crimes, the questions were, were raised again in my mind, and I wanted to address them in my fiction. Uh, so, but it took me, um, you know, years really to figure out how to how to do it, how to enter the story in a sense, how to structure the story. Um, I wrote a different book in the meantime, uh, and um, you know, so but you know, I was I was taking notes, I was reading, uh, you know, what I could, and, and talking to people who were um, who were and are directly connected to uh, some of the members of the colony. Well, before we go to the the place of how you took this nonfiction event and and brought it into fiction, I mean, I do, I do love the way the book begins, uh, particularly given the fact that the the women were being accused, or the cause of the rapes was originally attributed to the wild female imagination, and then we we open with this line: "Women talking is both a reaction through fiction to these real events and an act of female imagination." A very barbed and appropriately barbed beginning. But before we look at the ways you you bring it into fiction, I, I was wondering if we could just parse a little more your orientation as a Mennonite, because you did mention that you're a secular Mennonite and, mm-hmm. and that there's a, a wide variety of ways a person could be a Mennonite in the world in varying um, degrees of relationship to modernity, um, where the old colonists um, don't have electricity or phones, uh, don't use cars. That's not going to be true across the board. You're going to see a, a wide array, but even with them within the idea of um, a fundamentalist Mennonite community, the one that you grew up in, a fundamentalist Mennonite community in Manitoba, um, and the old, old colony Mennonites, both come from Russia originally, but they're not the same either, and they don't have the same relationship to each other. So, could you could you parse that a little bit for us? The difference between um, 
fundamentalist Mennonite community like the one you knew and, and an old colony Mennonite community is what are the, what are the overlaps and what are the differences that come to mind? It's funny. I was talking with some of my friends from, um, who also of course happen to be my relatives because we're all related in the, in the communities that we come from. But, and we were saying how, even though, um, you know, these closed colonies, uh, one, one might think that, you know, they, that the, that the, the rules, um, and, um, and, and that, uh, you know, the conditions are so extreme that they're somehow foreign um, to us, but but really they're not. I mean, in the community that I grew up in, a fundamentalist community for sure, although we, we you know, we, we dressed differently. We weren't dressing in the sort of, the, you know, the, the uniform style, as it were, probably the wrong word to use, um, as, as the Mennonites in, in the colonies who are, you know, very recognizable with their long dresses, the women with the long dresses and hair covering and the men in their overalls and hats, um, you know, and though we did drive cars, um, you know, in, in my Mennonite community and had electricity, et cetera, um, you know, really the, the rules, uh, were the same, the, the sins that, that the po- the possibility, the vast array of sins that we could be, um, committing at any, at any given time, often, you know, to our own bewilderment, um, you know, that, that kind of, uh, uh, group think the, the emphasis on, on, on punishment, on guilt, on shame, on um, silence, uh, um, you know, and again, that, you know, the, the, the very, the very strict uh, roles uh, for, for men and, and, and for women. I mean, that was all the same. And, and again, you know, the, the fundamentalist um, interpretation of the, of the scripture, you know, which is used, uh, by the elders, by the religious leaders in the community, in mine and in the closed colony colonies to, you know, really to, 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 um, you know, to, to hold, to, to maintain order, um, and particularly, you know, power for, for those, you know, for, for the elite, you know, for, for the leaders who are all male, of course. So, um, you know, so, so in those kind of most fundamental ways, uh, they're, they're, they're similar. Um, do you, do you see the, um, the old colonists leaving Canada for Mexico and then leaving Mexico for Belize and Bolivia as a way for them to maintain their own self policing insular Mm -hmm. societies? I mean, are these, are these, um, emigrations, uh, prompted by, something impinging upon them within the countries that they're living in, that they seek out other places where they can live in a way that's sort of hermetic and, and self-policed. Absolutely. Which again, you know, only, um, perpetuates the, the violence. Um, but, but, uh, because of that, you know, the, the self-policing and, and, and the, and the hermetic, like you say, insulation, uh, in, insularity of, of, of the colonies. And not that I, not that I f- am on board or believe in, in policing in the, in the first place or incarceration, um, or, or the justice system as it stands. But, but certainly that, that idea of self govern governance is, is something that, that, um, you know, that, that only, um, for further, you know, serves to, to harm, uh, and, and, uh, and the most vulnerable in, in the colonies who are, who are usually women, but yeah, the, the, the Mennonite, those Mennonites, um, and so, you know, the Russian Mennonites, this is my, my community of Mennonites moving from when, when the, when there is pressure from the government to assimilate, to put the kids in, in regular schools, for instance, to learn the language, to, uh, to join the military, then the tradition is that the, then Mennonites, 
most of them, if not all, some stay behind and um, and do assimilate or not, but will move to another country. And I and I kind of I hold you know some of these countries, you know, they're complicit as 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 well by by saying, okay, these Mennonites, we want to we want to populate this you know particular part of our our country. Um, we can we can get these Mennonites in. We'll we'll sell this land to them for cheap. They're looking for a place to practice their religion, some place you know that's that's remote and isolated. Um, they'll contribute to the economy. They'll stay out of trouble, you know, uh, um, and, and we won't have to worry about them. And so, you know, it's that kind of um, deal that 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 is so often made. So from Russia to Canada, um, and then you know from my communities specifically Steinbach, which is my my hometown, but other other communities in the area. You know when when again when that government pressure, uh, y- you know was was put on them to assimilate. They um, many of them moved um, south to to Mexico, to northern Mexico, to Chihuahua, to other places. And then again, it happens there. Uh, you know. And and then and then and then the Mennonites move further afield to, for instance, mm-hmm. Belize, Paraguay, Bolivia. Now I've, I uh, was recently told by um, somebody connected to the to the colonists that uh, in Bolivia that they're looking for land in Angola. So you know, there's a wow. constant migration, a constant movement uh, of Mennonites searching for that part of the world, um, you know, where they where where they're free to to. They would say free to practice their their religion, but I think that, of course, you know, with that comes comes also you know, and and they know this, you know, the the freedom to um, to uh, to 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 not only to practice their their religion, but also to engage in you know in harmful behavior mm-hmm. uh, and 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 violent behavior. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Miriam Taves about her latest book, Women Talking. You did mention, Miriam, that uh, it took you a while to figure out how to tell the story. And I think one of the most remarkable things about this book is that you didn't choose to tell it as a lurid enactment of the violence or even a book about the trial of the men. That Women Talking is literally a book of women talking. It's taking place after the rapists have been caught and before their trial, and the men of the colony have gone to town to try to post bail so that the accused rapists can come home to the community while awaiting trial, and perversely so that the women can forgive them so that the women's prospect of going to heaven isn't imperiled. And and the novel is, is essentially the portrayal of eight women meeting in a hayloft, deciding what they're going to do before the men return in less than two days. And this feels like really an an ingenious setup. And I wanted to ask you about the process of arriving at this as the structure and focus of the novel. But I also sort of want to um, partially hand off this question to a past guest, Catherine Lacey, um, to have her re-ask it in her own words, because she's the reason I first heard about the book when she was on, on Between the Covers. And she tweeted about it, and we talked about her tweet. And her tweet was, Women Talking is the best contemporary novel I've ever read. I'm usually not one for making digital noise about galleys, but Miriam Taves just elegantly demolished this whole century, and I cannot shut up about it. So when I knew you were coming on the show, I reached out to see if she had any questions, and I just want to read what she responded. I'm still wondering what can even be asked of Taves. I really feel like that book is one of those remarkably complete works of art that resists all questions that aren't wide-eyed statements of wonder. It's such a complete, wholehearted book. Here's a question, perhaps. 
Were there any roads during the writing of Women Talking that turned out to be dead ends? Or put another way, how is the resulting book different from the book you may have anticipated? What was thrown out? And then she says to me as an aside, a part of me suspects, whether erroneously or not, that any masterpiece likely arrives on a direct route from mind to page. But perhaps that's too romantic a notion of the very human messy route a book usually seems to take. So uh, yeah. long, long story short, I was hoping you could talk about um, that thinking process mm -hmm. because you, you arrive at this wonderful uh, structure and conceit for how to enter the, the story. Mm -hmm. But how was the beforehand of that and figuring that out? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I so admire Catherine Lacey that I'm just, uh, yeah, really, um, really, I really appreciate those, uh, those, those comments. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I mean, and she knows, you know, she, she, she's right. I mean, she, she, there, there is in a sense on the one hand. Yeah. It, it's, I think with writing with certain books, maybe all books, um, you know, when you've finished with the kind of preliminary circling around and circling around and circling around and trying to figure out how to enter the book, how to enter the story, um, you know, then, then there often does seem to be a kind of, you know, sort of, um, in a way, um, seamless sort of push towards the end where it seems as though, okay, yeah, this is the obvious choice. This is how it needs to be written. This is what I need to be asking. Um, but, but before that, that happens, if that happens, um, it's, it's all a little bit um, mysterious to me as, as well. But, um, with this book, I, I, you know, I did very, very briefly, think about the idea of revenge. Um, and, and, you know, revenge is, um, I mean, revenge stories are, 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 are stories, you know, books or, or films that I, that I often do enjoy. I, I can, I can appreciate them, but I realized very quickly that that's not really my, you know, um, M.O., as, as I say, it's not, I'm not, you know, I'm not, that's not what I'm looking for. And that's not what I'm thinking about. Um, it, it's, it, it would be a kind of very temporary, uh, superficial response that, that might be satisfying in, in the moment. But of course, you know, revenge only leads to more violence. And, and um, and so I knew that that wasn't the story that I that I wanted to tell, nor would it be a believable. It wouldn't be uh, a realistic kind of response from from the women either. Um, at no point in the book, really. I mean, th there there are some some characters, one in particular who is a little bit more vengeful than the others, and you know, rather uh, homicidal, and you know, wanting wanting to do these men harm for sure. But but um, but essentially, that's not what they're thinking about. What they're talking about, you know, the women the women are. Are, are trying to figure out what you know what they will do in order to um, to protect their children, uh, to to think, to gain agency, to you know o over their own lives, to be able to control their own lives, and also very importantly to keep their faith. Um, and um, so the idea of um, of revenge just just didn't seem like um, like a, a natural or, or believable or, or honest um, thing that they would that they would. But but so I did, I, I did you know very very early on before I even started writing it entertain that for maybe you know I remember walking around the block a few times and thinking ah what if you know and and quickly realizing that that's not mm. where I wanted to go. Um, There's this great line in the book 
that one of the women says. And it's, there is no plot, only women talking. And when the women say plot, they're using it to say there's no plotting behind the women's back. But what is so great about the book is the book really is a book of quote unquote talking, but it's mesmerizing. The women are debating strategy, ethics, biblical interpretation, questions of identity and justice. And the book manages to be both very funny at times and fraught with tension as the clock is ticking um, with the men about to return. And it feels like a book of women talking instead of plot underscores the act of women talking on their own terms and defining their own terms and debating the terms. It does feel like a, a revolutionary act. And I, I, I wanted to hear um, about this because I think the women would reject the term revolutionary who are, who are speaking it. But I, I wanted to hear about um, a little bit about the tension or maybe a false tension between talking and plot. Mm -hmm. You're right. The, the women would, would absolutely um, deny that they were revolutionaries. Um, it, it, that just wouldn't be a part of their thinking or their vocabulary, or um, certainly they know that they're fighting against something, um, but at the same time they grapple with that too because they're pacifists, they're non-resisters, they're, you know, the, the faith, the, the, the essential tenets of the, of the faith um, are, are important to them. And, and um, so, so yeah, they, they don't think of themselves as revolutionaries um, or that they are planning or plotting a, a revolution or some sort of insurgence um, resistance. But... but um, for I, I guess in terms of the idea of the of women, uh, just just the the, the the idea of of women talking, I think is something that I have noticed in my community, um, and it's something that I have, you know, been dealing with all of my life, you know, um, from the Mennonite patriarchy, um, and 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 uh, is is that that fear that the fact that it is such a threatening thing for um, particularly you know these types of um, individuals you know authoritarian uh, religious um, you know uh, controlling and and rule bound and the leaders of of the uh, uh, of the Mennonite colonies in my own community as well I, it's the, just you know I, and, it, and it's it's funny in a way that something like that can be so uh, threatening but um, I I, I I think that you know part part of the the entire machinery of these communities um, is you know the the the, the, the sort of uh, the, the structure is it's you know the, it's it's the built in need to to keep the women um, silent to prevent them from talking to each other for to prevent them from um, you know uh, again. Um, Taking control over their own lives and particularly rebelling against the men, the men, um, you know, the, and so, um, but and that's exactly you know what the, what the, the the Mennonites in 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 the Mennonite community, not in my book, but in the real Mennonite community, um, I I do have a lot of support from Mennonites, but the but the Mennonites who are very angry with me and who wish that I would stop writing uh, and stop speaking, um, that is the thing that um, that. That that they're most angry about is especially with with this with this book is that is that because I've written other books that are that are critical again of of you know fundamentalism of that culture of control and 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 that hasn't seemed to have um, those books haven't seemed to have angered them in, 
in in a way that this that this one does, and I and I know that it's um, because they've told me you know it's this idea of the, of the women um, getting together, organizing in a sense, and and also um, even entertaining the thought of as one of the characters says, um, creating their own religion, you know, which is just heresy, um, and uh, and and um, uh, you know sacrilegious. I mean, for for these for the religious leaders of these communities to hear something like that. Um, first of all, that it would be women. Secondly, that they would be planning, you know, this type of uh, reinterpretation of, of the scripture. Um, uh, so, so of course, what these women are doing is revolutionary. Well, in, in many of your interviews, you've described the situation for the women in the colonies as being imprisoned. And even though they're not literally physically imprisoned, there are a lot of ways they're structurally and culturally imprisoned. And and one of those ways is around language. And you, you mentioned, for instance, in Bolivia, they don't speak Spanish. The men speak Spanish. Uh, but they also don't have, um, they speak a unwritten medieval language that Mennonites speak, low German, and they're functionally illiterate. Um, but they never have access to actually seeing, because of that, a Bible to be able to form their own opinions about how the men are interpreting the Bible and thus how the men are operating the colony and they've never seen maps, so they can't place themselves in place around that. And I guess I, I, I was curious about your thoughts or further thoughts you have around, um, since we're talking about women talking, uh, the way language is potentially used as a way to exclude women from, uh, I mean, they're able to talk, mm-hmm. but they're not able to communicate in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, and without language, without that vocabulary, without that um, f- form of expression, essentially, you know, how can they, um, how can they plan? How, how can they, uh, you know, sort of filter their, their experience, their thoughts into something, you know, some sort of tangible course of action. And, um, and I mean, it's true, they don't speak the language of the country that they're in, which in this case would be, uh, in Bolivia, would, would be Spanish. Um, the language that they do speak is unwritten. Um, um, and they're and they're illiterate, functionally functionally illiterate, as you say. Um, so you you know, so I mean, they 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 are prisoners, and not only are they physical prisoners within these closed colonies, unable to leave. I mean, there's no you know bus or cab or airport or train station any, anywhere n- nearby, of course, and they don't leave without without um, being accompanied by a man. Um, you know, they're also they're also spiritual mental i mean their their minds their bodies their their souls are are policed in a sense by you know by by um by by the 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 men of of the colony and the leaders of the of the colony and um so even the idea of um, using language of the the possibility of using language to kind of to craft a uh, a manifesto, if you want to call it that, the women wouldn't use that word, um, and they, you know, they 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 joke about it. They they downplay that. They 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 joke about the word and and about the meaning of the word, um, but they're dead serious, and that is in fact what they're doing. And and um, and language is a necessary tool, and they're kept from it. And um, and of course, that only serves to 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 divide, to silence, to uh, and again to to put all of the the power um, in the in the hands of the of the. Uh, 
of the of the men in 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 the community and and they talk about words and they talk about uh the futility of words uh and the and the specific you know what 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 you know what what does this word mean exactly we need to know exactly what what we're talking about you know they they need to know uh how to define what it is that they're doing in order to make it make sense and um you know, so so language, the debate around language, around you know the precise definition of words, is something that they 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 engage in as as well, mm. because it's a tool. I mean, it is a tool. You know, mm-hmm. it's a revolutionary tool. When I, when I think of the colony situation for the women, I think of how it isn't all it isn't entirely or necessarily Mennonite specific, but I. At least for me, when I was reading it, I was thinking of other self-policed, self-isolating, fundamentalist situations like the recent revelation of Catholic nuns being turned into literal sex slaves for priests or to the Mormon, uh, some Mormon communities that still practice polygamy and have extremely young girls as wives. And I suspect there's probably analogous situations in fundamentalist, closed Jewish and Muslim communities. Um, and it also feels like this seemingly extreme scenario points out things that are there in the everyday secular world too, or at least I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. For one, it made me think of, of Kathy Acker's acts of appropriation or what she would call literary piracy. Uh, the way women both in the world at large and also in language have to operate within the rules and with the tools that they didn't create and with a canon that largely doesn't include them. And with Acker's response being that women should become literary criminals who break the literary laws, and and, and in a way they become original through theft. Um, and I also was thinking of a recent reconsideration of the controversial feminist icon, Andrea Dworkin, that I was reading about in the New York Times. And they quoted something from her that felt like it spoke both to the structural disempowerment of secular women and also to the old colony women somehow at the same time. Dworkin said, our enemies, rapists, and their defenders not only go unpunished, they remain influential arbiters of morality. They have high and esteemed places in the society. They are priests, lawyers, judges, lawmakers, politicians, doctors, artists, corporation executives, psychiatrists, and teachers. I guess what I'm leading to is a curiosity about your thoughts about how, if at all, this this story of th- this grotesque story of the old colony Mennonite community, um, how you see that applying or not to lessons for uh, for a person living a secular life, either mm-hmm. secular Mennonite in Toronto or mm-hmm. the secular non-Mennonite person. Mm-hmm. One of the the goals or, or the hope, I guess, with the book is that although it is a specific setting, specific people um, that, 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 that are so, you know, exotic in, in a way that it transcends that. And, and, and I mean, these, these types of crime, I mean, if you look at somebody like Bill Cosby, um, you look at, you know, the, 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 the number that, uh, of women who have been uh, raped and assaulted, um, you, you know, on university campuses, which, you know, for instance, are, you know, the, you know, you you know the, these bastions of of uh, of secular thinking of of enlightenment and you know so so I mean it is across the it is across the board um, 
And and uh, I think it's easy for uh, women, for a woman like myself anyway, when I'm wandering around downtown Toronto at night, I feel s- relatively uh, safe. Um, you know, I, I feel somewhat empowered. I know that if something, you know, I could, that, that I have recourse, unlike the, you know, the women in these Orthodox communities. Um, but, but, but at the same time, it's, it, you know, when can so quickly be reminded that ah no i am vulnerable you know and and um and and we and and we and we are and and um you know and that type of entitlement like you say i mean you know there are different ways that 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 uh y- that male entitlement uh can can you know be be acted on or or can be um you know can transpire and it's not only from you know a, f- a fundamentalist interpretation of the bible that says you, you know women submit to your husbands or children submit to your daughters you know submit to your fathers but also from positions of of power like you say and, and um and so, you, you know, I mean, it, it's um, um, there. There's m- more conversation uh, around it now, and and th- thankfully, but you know, but just because women haven't necessarily been talking about it as much as they are now, doesn't mean that you know they weren't realizing it and experiencing it. I mean, I guess you know one of the one of the questions that a lot of people readers ask me too is you know am I hopeful that you know this that that that, that there's some change some uh, you know something something will happen you know where where uh, where but but um, and I'm sorry I'm not articulating this very well but but and I am hopeful you know but but it seems like it's a, yeah a long 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 ways away. Well, when we think about talking as potentially a revolutionary act or, or women talking as a revolutionary act and, and think of that in, in relationship to silence. In the real-life Bolivian case, a, a code of silence descended upon the community after the trials. There was no apparent colony-wide self-reckoning, and the women were never offered therapy, even though Mennonite groups from abroad had offered to send Mennonite therapists who spoke low German to work with the women the men never relayed this offer to the wives and daughters and sisters, so they never had the opportunity to consider the offer. Uh, I know there's tension potentially between old colonists and other types of Mennonites, so there would be that politics yeah. too, but but they were never participants in deciding whether to have the ability to choose a, about having therapy. But perhaps the ultimate way a person's voice could be erased is that the women were not allowed to testify at their own trial on mm-hmm. their own behalf that men spoke for them on their behalf. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to I wanted to take that phenomenon in real life Bolivia and look at the question of of silence and uh, um and the Mennonite notion that certain things should not be exposed in relationship to the essay that you wrote in Granta called Peace Shall Destroy Many. And you you start that piece with the Mennonite author Rudy Weeb, who in the sixties wrote a book called Peace Shall Destroy Many that looks at the Mennonite tenets of pacifism and non-conflict and suggests that these tenets might themselves be sources of violence and conflict, that he was wondering whether the Mennonite anti-war stance was self-serving when Mennonite farmers were still selling produce to the Canadian army at a profit and other things. And in your essay, you link the response in the Mennonite community that certain things shouldn't be exposed to the time-honored Mennonite practice of avoiding conflict and refusing engagement, that the shouldn't be exposed was sort of its the 
dark underbelly of Mennonite pacifism. Uh, and in one line you say, war is hell, it's true. Shouldn't be exposed is another hell. Shouldn't be exposed stifles and silences and violates. Shouldn't be exposed refuses and ignores and shames. Shouldn't be exposed shields, bullies, and tyrants. I have seen it in my own life. I would just love to hear your thoughts, I guess, about what you did see in your own life around shouldn't be exposed in, mm-hmm. in the in the Mennonite community you, you grew up in. Oh, well, I mean, you, you know, it's hard to know where to begin. I mean, really, on, honestly, genuinely, just about everything. Um, the, you know, when if you start off with everything um, that happens being God's will, for instance, um, then even the expression of anger, anger in the Mennonite community, at least how I grew up, you know, was, a, was, a, was considered to be a, a, a great sin, you know, really a moral failure. Um, and any, any, you know, hard, intense emotion, but particularly anger, particularly that act of, of resistance, um, of challenging. Um, conflict was avoided if at all possible. But of course, you know, there was conflict hap- happening all of the time. It just wasn't uh, acknowledged or spoken of or, you know, or dealt with directly. Um, you know, the, the, the levels of the, the passive uh, aggression, you know, aggressiveness that that um, you know is sort of a typical Mennonite way of expressing displeasure. You know, oh hey, it's so good to see you here in church. You know, this week, I, I have have you been? You you must have been sick uh, recently because I haven't seen you for. You know, I'm so sorry that you that you were sick. You know, and if, you know, I mean, that's just that's just you know a, a, a superficial, silly example, but but. Um, you know, but then on, you know, more seriously, when, when, when you feel that any expression of, um, of discontent, uh, let alone rage, you know, is considered a sin, which you will be punished for not only, you know, within the community, be it by excommunication or, or shunning or some type of discipline, dis- uh, you know, but also by, by God, you know, and, and I mean, that's a real thing. That's, um, and the, and so, so, you know, the, the expression of, um, I mean, any kind of, I, you know, f- even physical expression, you know, movement, da- dancing, any s- sort of expression of pure joy is is is, con- is considered suspect. I, re- I remember, you know, dancing for a little bit when I was a kid in the hallway of my school. Just I was happy about something. I don't know what it was. I was a little kid, and you know, my my teachers, several of them, you know, rushing and saying, "Stop it! Stop it!" You know, and telling me that I needed to have my wings clipped. Um, you know, because, because of that type of expression. So, um, when you are experiencing, and, and this, you know, in my, in, in my mother, for instance, in my community was a social worker and then, and then a therapist dealing mostly with, um, with Mennonites, of course. And, um, and she was able to speak the language of Plautich so she could, um, you, you know, offer therapy and they could, they could communicate. But, um, you know, I mean, the, the domestic violence and, um, so many, uh, if, you know, the, the only option really, I mean, she was the only, um, therapist slash a social worker in her, t- in, in the town and, and the, and the option of going to, uh, you know, you could possibly go to your, the minister of, of the church and say, you know, this is what's happening to me at home. And, and the minister, uh, would, you know, say, you know, you, you need to forgive your husband and, uh, and basically, uh, you know, suck it up. I mean, there's, there's just, 
Um, and for myself, too, I mean, I, you know, for the expression, for, for me, listening to, you know, again, this seems so superficial and kind of irrelevant, but, you know, music, rock music, whatever it is, books, certain books. Um, and my family was a bit of an anomaly within the community. I, we were encouraged to read and to and to 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 go to university and to open, to speak our minds. But but this was, you know, highly unusual, um, you know. So, I mean. At whatever age it is, if you're, you know, a little kid dancing in the school corridor or you're a teenager listening to, you know, Led Zeppelin or you're, uh, you, you know, you're a battered wife um, attempting to get some kind of uh, counseling, um, you know, all, all of this stuff is 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 suppressed. And um, and again, you know, that rigid, rigid sense of control um, that the that the leaders, that the elders need to maintain in order to um you know, to prevent, uh, you know, the terrifying things in their mind, uh, you know, the things in their minds that are that are terrifying, you know, which which include, uh, you know, um, people leaving people, people um, um, sort of peeling, peeling, peeling away the, the facade of, the, of these, you know, see, you know, self governed pacifist um, uh communities you know that are that are supposedly you know with the, you know the emphasis on on forgiveness and, and 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 harmony and peace you know well well the the you know the reality is is vastly different from that and to mm. to express any of that to to see it first of all to observe it to to identify that um is one thing um but then to you know to to talk about it is um uh, is you know is something that is imp- impossible without without consequence. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Miriam Taves about her latest book, Women Talking. Well, you mentioned that Women Talking is the book that has prompted the most anger from certain sectors of the Mennonite community. And Rudy Weeb, who you were writing about in his book, um, he was fired from his job as at the newspaper, he was denounced as a liar and a traitor and called an atheist, though uh, views have really softened toward him over the years. I was I was just curious about what that felt like to be on a joint book tour with him mm-hmm. um, as sort of somebody who uh, had experienced some of this uh, blowback mm-hmm. prior to you in yeah. a different generation. Yeah. I mean, Rudy, Rudy Weeb is, is a friend and, 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 um, a great writer and he's been very, you know, he, he, in some, in some ways, a, a type of maybe literary father figure in a way. Um, he, he's, he, he's gone back to the church. I'm not sure that he ever, I don't think, I mean, the, the, these, you know, uh, charges of atheism and, and, um, you know, of having lost his faith or of somehow, um, you know, uh, I don't, I don't think they were ever true according, according to him. I mean, he was just speaking out about, you know, what he was seeing in the community, um, you know, with, with, the hope that that there could be discussion around it maybe that's naive you know he he would probably say that it was naive of him at at that point and um but to to think that there could be you know discussion but you know he and i remain hopeful um but but i know that he he is you know he he is a part of the the mennonite church uh now um and and um and and um, belongs to a very liberal uh, church like my mother, um, for instance, who belongs to a very liberal, progressive, um, very nurturing church. Um, but the tour, so so the tour, you know, there were there were angry people. I mean, people were angry with with what I was 
writing. We were in very conservative small towns in Germany touring around together. It was, it was quite fun, actually, except for, you know, the angry people. <laughs> and and he, um, you know, he, he absolutely uh, defended me and, and uh, tried, you know, tried to, to explain that, um, you know, that, that what I was attempting to do was something that he also had attempted to do, which was to generate some sort of discussion, um, you know, that we can, as Mennonites, we can be self-critical. We can say, look, we have problems in our midst, <laughs> you know, maybe some of these traditions, maybe some of these, you know, our li- our lifestyles in some way conducive to this kind of, you know, harm, and maybe we could, you know, look at that and change, etc. Um, but but again, um, you know, there are people. There were people then when he started writing, and people now who just don't want to hear that. Who who you know put so much energy towards towards you know silencing this stuff towards um you know making it going go away to 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 towards that that denial um you know be, because because they're you know very as as opposed to you know protecting um you know the 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 women for instance in the, in their communities or 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 of of changing you know or of um addressing the the problems of violence it was really uh, comforting. I've, I felt um, so supported by by his, uh, you know, by by his friendship, by him, by his defending me. Um, that felt good because he's, you know, he's kind of this Mennonite superstar. Not not only Mennonite, but you know, just just in the in the literary uh, world. Um, and Rudy Weeb, you know, and I talked about this that. Um, you know, there, there's a certain. I mean, there, there are a, a you know a number of Mennonites, um, and I would say that they are exclusively male, though though not completely. Maybe, maybe not exclusively male, but mostly um, who are very, very concerned about the Mennonite brand, as as it were, about you know public perception of Mennonites. Mennonites have a, have a reputation. You know, everywhere I go, people not f- super familiar with um, Mennonites will say, "Oh, but I always thought you know Mennonites were these you know peace loving, hardworking, you know sweet, um, you know going into places and and." delivering aid and help to, you know, the unfortunate. And, you know, and there's an element of truth to that, obviously, and obviously there are decent Mennonites. Um, but, but, um, but, but, you know, the, 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 the men uh, predominantly who are upset with the stuff that Rudy Weeb used to write and the stuff that I write, you know, are those who are very concerned with that public perception. Hmm. And, and I would imagine that, you know, for the most part, they have a kind of vested interest in it, either they're, you know, you know, and, there, and there's money at the, uh, involved as well. I mean, you know, they want people to join the Mennonite Church, to tithe to the Mennonite Church, uh, to support right. the Mennonite Church, and to support that, you know, power. Hmm. Well, let's let's talk more about the heart of the book, the the conversation that the women have. So we we are with eight women who show up in the hayloft to discuss and debate what to do before the men return, and it's two families three generations of women, four, four women in each family. Can you talk to us a little bit about the debate that they have, the options that they consider, and, and then the considerations with how you wanted to portray the women in the room and, and which women you wanted to have in the room in the first place? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so the women, uh, they're, they're two, two families, um, 
teen, you know, teenagers, their mothers, uh, and their mothers. So, you know, middle-aged women and, and grandmothers and teenagers, eight women. Um, and I, 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 each of the, each of the women is, um, modeled after, um, you know, the, a Mennonite woman that I know either I'm related to my sister, my mother, my grandmother or friends. Um, and, um, and, and it was important to me that the women, uh, are, I mean, I think it's, it's easy to think of these Mennonites as these, you know, weirdos living in in the middle of nowhere doing strange things and you know kind of not entirely human and and it was important to me to show that they are uh human beings you know that they are capable of debate of debate of 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 um of of thinking of consensus of working through ideas of um of considering different options and obviously and and um so they i mean they are critical of each other at times they laugh they joke they they come together hard you know and when when they're singing um and sort of uh, for uh, for, you know worshiping with scripture and um, they contradict themselves. They're ordinary women, um, you know, performing something that's probably revolutionary. Uh, but, but, um, mm, so yeah, so I guess that's, you know, when I was thinking about who the, who they were, I just thought of the women that I know. Well, one of the things that makes the debate really fascinating is that it's constrained by their desire to remain pacifists and also to come up with a solution that arises from their faith. They do fl- there are women in the hayloft who flirt with the boundaries of faith and wonder whether uh, they should stay within those boundaries. But for the most part, they're trying to, f- to puzzle out um, some philosophical questions mm-hmm. that are pretty complex within a framework that they want to honor at the same time. And I was, I was wanting to hear more about that, mm-hmm. about this... Um, I mean, because it would be easy to put people in a situation where uh, they don't have those constraints and they could come up with all sorts of different potential Mm -hmm. things. But it becomes, I think, more fascinating as as and also likely more real that they're having to puzzle it out in Mm -hmm. a way that also reflects where they come from. Absolutely. I mean, they're making their decision within the context of their faith Um, and their and their faith. You know, they have these. They, they have three options, whether they'll uh, stay and fight, whether they'll leave, whether whether they'll do nothing. But they also have three things that they want to that they want to achieve, which are to think, um, you know, to, to 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 make decisions for themselves, to decide for themselves how they'll how they'll live, um, to protect their children and to keep their faith. And and so everything that they talk about, you know, is and, and that's that that's the the, you know, the, the basis of their of their experience in life of what they've of the information that they've um, gleaned, but also been given, handed down uh, by the religious leaders, and 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 um, but but also that they've come to think about, you know, often uh, that that they inhabit. I mean, they inhabit that faith, um, and um, and and for them, and that's you know, for them to even imagine making decisions or living in some way, creating a lifestyle outside of that faith is, is impossible. Um, you know, so, so even if they do entertain the idea of, um, 
and are hashing it out and and puzzling it out, like you say, um, you know, there's never any question that if they leave or if they stay, um, everything that they do will be bound up with with their faith, with the tenets of the Mennonite faith in in particular, with 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 the with the gospel, with you know the teachings of Jesus, and and um and, and that's you know that I feel in my mind because of where I come from and my and and my own way of kind of you know, living or defining my life or seeing or, 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 you know, the context that I have with when I'm making decisions of my own, that, that, that will always be, you know, their, 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 their focus. Um, and the loft in, in a, in a, in a sense, I mean, there's, they're in a loft, which for me was symbolic of that, of that kind of, um, of, you know, that kind of liminal space really between earth and sky. Um, of course they have all of their earthly concerns and, um, problems. They need to figure out, you know, how how they're going to live, survive, eat, um, Etc. But you know, but they're also they're also grappling with huge uh, theological questions, in a sense, philosophical um, questions and ideas, and spiritual ones as well. So it's. Um, I mean, I love the I love the way that, um, for instance, one of the reasons that they might decide to leave, if they were to decide to leave, is not because they'd be leaving the Mennonite faith, but in order to preserve their faith, in mm-hmm. a sense that if they couldn't imagine staying and not being filled with hatred or the urge to violence, then the only way to protect their souls was to be away from the men. I mean, that wasn't the necessarily a decision that comes to, but it was something mm-hmm. that was brought up, which is very fascinating and maybe counterintuitive mm-hmm. that leaving could be staying yeah, within a- the faith. Absolutely. And all, and also, um, the, you know, with the idea of forgiveness too, that, um, they, they know, and they want to, they know that, um, that, you know, the onus is on them to, to forgive and they want to forgive. Um, they don't know how necessarily they will be able to forgive genuinely. Um, but, but, um, you know, they, they also talk about the idea of, um, you know, leaving being, being, if they were to leave, that this would give them that distance that they need to, um, you know, to, to, to get to that place of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's also worthwhile pointing out that eight women show up at the hayloft, but there's a lot of women who don't go to this debate. And it makes me think about, uh, the role of silence and the framework of, of silencing, uh, and, makes me wonder about the women who aren't in the book who, and for what reasons are they not there? I mean, some of them I'm, I'm assuming might want to be there and others might mm-hmm. not want to be there, but I wanted, I wanted to take that, that framing around silencing that's cultural and linguistic and, and, and read a little quote from an essay by Ann Carson called variations on the right to remain silent. And that, um, that essay is about translation but in it, she engages with the trial of Joan of Arc, and I'm going to read a, a description of that trial, just sort of as a setup for a question I have about the way you you frame the book. And um, so this is Anne Carson about Joan of Arc. Her trial lasted from January to May of 1431 and entailed a magistrate's inquest, six public interrogations, nine private interrogations, an abjuration, a relapse a relapse trial, and condemnation. Her death by fire took place on May 30th, 1431. Thousands of words went back and forth between Joan and her judges during the months of her inquisition. Many of them are available to us in some form. But Joan herself was illiterate, 
she spoke Middle French at her trial, whose minutes were then transcribed by a notary and later translated into Latin by one of her judges. This process involved not only the transposition of Joan's direct responses into indirect speech and of her French idioms into the Latin of juridical protocol, but also deliberate falsification of some of her answers in such a way as to justify her condemnation. This was revealed at the retrial 25 years after her death. And I think of this trial in relationship to women talking because of how buried the women's Hayloft conversation is within the structure of, of patriarchy. Uh, so the first person who speaks in women talking is a man. He's both the narrator of the book and the minute taker of their conversation. And he's translating the low German spoken by the women into English, but he has to do this quickly as it, as it is spoken. So of course this might not be accurate no matter how well intentioned he is. We also learn before we know much about him, that he has a past criminal history and is possibly mentally ill. And it made me think that, like Joan of Arc, no matter how benevolent our narrator August Epps is, and I think ultimately we find out that he is, the very fact that he has to tell us the story because these women can't read or write because they don't have access to maps, to know where they are because they can't read the Bible to assess its interpretation— it's almost like the very presence of August as the frame shows us just how much translation has to happen before their voices will be heard in any form. I guess I wanted to hear your thoughts about that because I feel like you've spoken about important reasons why you wanted August to tell the story that are very different than that. But I also feel like not knowing those intentions on your, on your behalf, it also feels like um, August just shows how how deeply buried women's voices are to begin with, mm -hmm. that even when we have a book about women talking, we have mm -hmm. to contend with the minute taker. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm just, I'm just still struck by, uh, by the passage that you, that, that you read. Um, that's just so fascinating. I would love to read, I would love to read uh, more of that. And also that translation, uh, speaking of translations of her trial of Joan of Arc's trial. Uh, but, but, um, but, but yeah, the, the, I mean, August, it's true, uh, you know, um, what, you know, do we really know or can we really n know when, when there are so many layers, like, so, like, like you say, the translation first, um, uh, from the English, um, in, in, or from the, from the low German, from, from the Plautich in, into English and then, you know, done in a hurried manner and, you know, with obvious choices being made, you know, by, by August or by the narrator, by, you know, by the minute taker to, to, um, you know, j j just choices that he's making based on his own experience, um, and his own, own kind of emotional and, or intellectual interpretation of what they're saying. So, um, and then of course at, at, at the end, um, you know, the, the minutes are, are irrelevant. Um, you know, the, the whole, one of the reasons why he, he's there, of course, is because Ona, one of the characters has in an act of compassion said, Hey, August, you know, we know you're suffering. You're 
despairing, you're suicidal, come stay with us, you'll be safe, we'll give you this task. Um, but it's not something that they need. It's not something that they need to make their decision. Um, you know, they, 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 they're, they're doing something more important than, than, you know, simply documenting what it is that they're doing in the hope, of course, you know, and the implication is that they'll go on to write their, to write their own stories or, or maybe their grandchildren or great-grandchildren uh, will, um, and there won't be any translation necessary but but um but but when i was thinking about you know further to your your question um about when i decided that the book would be a response to the rapes that the that the content of the book would be these minutes of of these meetings and you know um uh i i i also uh had to grapple with this kind of problem that I have, uh, or I don't know what it is, a kind of pathology or um, strange sort of uh, uh, tendency, which is to fight with every book that I write, to fight for, um, to to believe in its relevance, to, to fight a sense of kind of creeping futility, um, you know, that I, that I experience. So why, what, you know, why am I doing this? Why am I writing this? Um, there's no reason to write this book. Um, and whether that means that I, you know, I have other issues that need addressing or if it's just, you know, the way, the way that I, that I write, the way that I get going. But so this book and, and other books of mine as well, there's, there's often a kind of, um, a kind of uh, reason that, for instance, in an older book of mine, in a complicated kindness, the sixteen-year-old protagonist is the, the whole book is an assignment that she's writing. So she had that assignment. So that meant that I then had an assignment. She's mm-hmm. my protagonist. So then it made sense. Okay, I have this assignment to write this book. And I know that sounds kind of flaky and sort of esoteric and intangible, and and it is. But it makes sense in my mind. It gives me then a reason. Um, and so if I could put myself, I could become August in, in a sense, um, y- you know, ha- having having to having a, a task, uh, a fictional task within the act of writing the fiction. I know this is sort of a meta, you know, mm-hmm. kind of kind of thing. But but, um, you know, for, it, for that reason, it it made uh, sense to me on that on that level as well. But um but it's so true, you know, with that trial, um, uh, with uh, uh, with the Anne, Car- Anne Carson's piece about Joan of Arc's trial, and and you know, in a sense, I mean, you know, the, this this story, this story too. I mean, we're left possibly at the end, and like with so many trials of women, with so many acts of condemnation, where what they say, what we say, is is uh, you know um, altered, changed, you know, to to justify to justify the punishment, the condemnation, like you say, um, you know, how how will we ever you know really know what was said um can can you talk about that in relationship to the gesture at the end of women talking which isn't really a spoiler of any sort but the turning away from the minutes but there's also turning away from the word and books and other books of yours and there's this um, intertextuality and this questioning of language um in this book which is one of the delightful things of this book, we get August's sort of translation asides. We get these parentheticals where he's he's debating how to translate something as as we read. But say like in Irma Voth, you get the mis, the intentional mistranslations of the movie um, that changes the narrative. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what you're doing there? Mm-hmm. That you, it feels like you return to over and over again these mm-hmm. these endings which I think depart from language mm-hmm. and also this um, 
throughout the books, um, sort of a foregrounding of maybe, uh, I don't know if the artificiality of language or the limitations of language. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and in Irma Voth, too, you know, she's given, again, a kind of a task in, in a way by the director of the film for whom she's working. You, you know, here's a notebook, Irma, record your thoughts. You know, this will be interesting for you to do. And so she very earnestly attempts to do that, always crossing things out, you know, rewriting. No, that's not. And, and again, like you say, mis, mis, misinterpreting intentionally what the, you know, what, what the, the script um, to make it more honest. Yeah, um, I guess, what am I doing? I mean, that that's, I think, you know, lately I've been thinking, yeah, I've been thinking more about that and what that says about me, but also what it says about my relationship with my work, with my writing and with language um, and, and with this notion of ever really, is it possible to ever really write anything that's, um, you know, that's just, you, you know, that really gets a... a gets at the thing <laughs> and um and the the limitations and the failure of language and of words and all my puny sorrows which is a book that i wrote before this book um you know the, there there's a pile of books um uh well well uh one of the characters who you know is is um uh, dead set. Uh, it's a bad joke on on um, on ending her life, on killing herself. Um, you know, there, there's uh, at, towards the end of that book, um, she goes to her home. She leaves the hospital and goes to her home, and her partner uh, has has gone to the library as per her instructions and and taken out, checked out a, a bunch of books that she says she wants to read, and they're in a stack, and there they are, and she sees them, and they're there, but she doesn't go to them. Uh, but but in but in fact she goes to end her life and so um, and and and, that, and that's as you know explicit as can be I mean the failure of language the failure of books the failure of, of narrative of words um, of translation of um, expression uh, you know to to ever sort of understand to ever come to a kind of real clear. I don't know, understanding, definition of the human heart, uh, uh, soul. So, and that's something that I, f- I feel that, that I'm constantly struggling, struggling with that, you know, essentially every, everything I write, I, it feels, you know, <clears throat> like that, that type of sim- similar failure, um, in its, in its attempt to, or in my attempt to write something that's true, um, so, and maybe other writers feel the same way, mm. uh, probably. Well, one of the things that August does in the book is he recounts a tale of st- stealing pears from a pear tree, which parallels the confession of St. Augustine. And I-, I was wanting to hear why you you want to twin August mm-hmm. with Augustine in the, in the book. Again, you know, because of the, the religious uh, sim- symbolism and and um, parallel, parallel, you know, this is a religious community. August is a is also, a, you know, a religious in, in a sense um, guy. He also um, struggles with with his faith uh, in the way that Augustine uh, did. Um, he He struggles with his own human need. Um, whether it's sexual or intellectual, uh, you know, or, or, or even just simply physical, just as human needs. Um, and, and so, you know, he struggles with that, you know, kind of against, you know, versus the, a, a sort of um, spirituality in a spiritual uh, context to life, but, 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 or 
a pr- or a way of living, um, you know, and and I think Augustine did as did as well, and Augustine also um, ha- had a tendency to to write and write and write and write and write, as we know, uh, almost in a, you know I can't remember the name of that disease, but you know where he can't stop himself from mm-hmm. writing, and I and I just like the the parallel with August, who of course is there to write, you know, to, right. to and to write quickly, yeah. you know, and and honestly, oh, I love that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well. He does feel like, I think August feels like the perfect narrator beyond the fact that he's personable and lovable. Um, because he's an insider-outsider, He growing up in the colony, leaving to the secular world and then returning again. So he he has a certain authority, but he also is sort of a window for those of us who who didn't have a Mennonite childhood. But there's another way in which August is an insider-outsider, and that's the way he has low status among the men. He's seen as effeminate, as a half-man, and thus it isn't really strange that he's been left behind by the men as they go to town to post bail for the accused rapists. And perhaps that's even the reason why it, um, the women aren't suspicious about having him as a minute-taker among the women attending their strategy meeting. So I guess I wanted to hear a little bit about uh, masculinity in relationship to August and the insider outsider aspect of him that is based on him mm-hmm. being a or being seen as a diminished man or a feminized man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and not only that, but also some a damaged man because he has been in the world, you know, for for all of those years, and because of his dubious uh, lineage, and, and um, y- you know, so I mean, he's he's sort of um, discounted in so in so many ways, uh, and certainly, yeah, the fact that he you know that he's um, educated, um, you know, that he that he that he believes in 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 reading and writing and reasoning. Um, and m- much like, again, he's a, he's a character that I, you know, used my own father to, um, you know, that who served as inspiration for the character of August. Um, my father was a teacher and also maligned and mocked, um, uh, you know, by, by the, by the real, the so-called real men of the community. Uh, my father liked to do things like ride his bike around and walk and <laughs> read books and write books in fact. And of, and of course, you know, he was an elementary school teacher, which was considered, um, you know, a sort of preposterous thing to, to be, um, and, August, um, you know, the, 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 um, is, is a similar, is a, is a similar character and struggling of course with a, a men- mental illness, which isn't named, uh, as anything other than NARFA in, in the book or nervousness and, and, um, but, but, uh, nervous disposition, but, um, and and um that the August can bring to the narrative because of as you said the you know his his outside experience he's you know he's in he's in both he's he's in the closed colony and he has his outside experience to bring to the narrative and for me uh it was useful just simply in terms of the pacing and the rhythm and uh, of the uh of the of, of the book lending a, a kind of breath in, in a sense so that you know with the intensity of the women's conversation as they hash this out and it's so urgent and the stakes are so high and and you know these these sort of 
you know deep philosophical questions that they're um, that they're that they're grappling with um, to to then have August just come in periodically with you know one of his anecdotes or one of his observations or one of his memories or one of his own questions um, you know I felt you know what was a kind of nice you know if if it, if there is any sort of musicality to the narrative or any narrative then it offers a, a type of breath um, away and it, and it gives the women a chance to observe August in, in a sense and. Mm-hmm. And, and we see, you know, how they how they feel about him, and, and certainly one of one of the women um, basically feels about him as, you know, and this, she sort of absorbed that kind of, um, you know, that that um, that feeling of of uh, uh, whatever, whatever, you know, dis, dislike, distrust of, or you know, of of August as not being quite man enough. He doesn't know how to farm. This is very, you know, suspicious within this community, and. Um, you know, and, 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 and yeah, for those reasons, you know, some of the other women do feel close to him. They feel that he is somebody almost like them in, in a sense, um, somebody that they can trust. And, um, and he certainly does, uh, you know, as, as, as the, as the narrative goes on and as he's, you know, he's there in the loft and, it's that inversion of roles again, you know, as the women are the philosophers and planning and, um, you know, having their important discussion, um, he's there to, to, to listen and to learn and to bear witness. Uh, and, um, and, and he, he comes to his own, um, kind of, uh, not conclusions certainly, but, you know, he, he, um, he, he learns to, uh, he, he, his love for the women is um, strengthened and his respect and he, I mean, he asks himself, you know, how, how will, if they, if the women leave, you know, how will I live without these women? What will he do? So he's left with questions of his own. Hmm. Well, when I, when I think about the limited definition of masculinity uh, in relationship to the actual Bolivian old colony case, from what I was reading, there were men and boys who were also raped, but these victims were not included in the legal case. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing that probably arises from the shame or mm-hmm. silence around that, that mm-hmm. the men and boys wouldn't want to be potentially, or uh, I don't know, but I yeah. it was curious. It, yeah. it came out to me as, as very striking that not one of them is, is, yeah part of the case absolutely yeah um that i i was told that too by several people um with um links uh with contact with colony members that there were boys involved and um i've you, you know and 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 that's important to to know that um although in you know that 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 kind of um patriarchal violence and that kind of, you know, authoritarianism, uh, et cetera, uh, isn't something that's, you know, confined, uh, to the women that men and boys suffer, you know, under, under these patriarchies as, as well. Um, I've, and, and there would be a, a, a huge deep shame in, um, in, in that. I mean, you know, the, 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 you know, basically, um, I don't think that the 
men or the boys would 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 ever talk about it um you know necessarily and and certainly the, that's not you know the narrative that comes from the colony around around these around this um story but it it, it is true that boys are also um raped and um it's one of the i think conundrums in their debate also in the sense that if they decide to leave what do they do with their sons and what at what age is are are one of their sons a man mm-hmm. um and would they bring the sexually mature boys mm-hmm. along with them too and there i don't know that it, the women came to any mm-hmm. conclusions but it certainly was a, a thorny and complicated question when they started thinking about how um, interwoven they are into their own families. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and, you know, in, in, in these communities at 15, 16, you're being baptized into, you know, so, so then you're a member of the church, a member of the community. Um, and, you know, for the, for the boys, then, you know, they're in a sense, they're, then they're, they're men. And, and, um, you know, and yet we know that a 15 year old, you know, boy is still a, a boy, very much a child, you know, moving into, you know, adulthood, but not there yet and and um and to leave yeah i mean how 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 can you i mean it's unthinkable to to leave your your child behind simply because he's a you know a male of a, of a certain age considered to be a man by you know by by the community but but of course not um so it is something that the women have to figure out almost in a in a in a very kind of uh um, pragmatic way, you know, well, well, what will be the cutoff, you know, because of course, you know, if they do leave, they want to take their children, but will they also be taking their adult male children, <laughs> you know, um, uh, yeah, it's something that they, and, and, and it causes, you know, great, great pain, you know, can they join them later, you right. know, uh, what, what, what will they do, um, and what will happen to them when they leave, will they then be, uh, one of the characters says, you know, then will the boys be used, uh, you know, in our place, used to satisfy these, you know, the violent urges of the, of the, of the men, and and um, and that and that. Um, I recently received an email from uh, from from a woman who is related to somebody from that particular colony. Uh, photographs of boys who had been teenage boys who had been viciously, viciously, viciously um, uh, beaten um and and whipped and um the the photographs are you know of their torsos showing showing the the marks from you know from the the horse horse whip and bleeding and bruised and really unrecognizable faces of being punched and hit and um and and these boys apparently had somehow managed to somehow connect with somebody who had uh, access to the internet to a computer and mm. were you know they were able and so those pictures are circulating now within um the Mennonite um community and um yeah i mean you know the 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 the, the violence within these within these communities is is uh, you know um it it's um unchecked and and um and and condoned and 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 so sanctioned um you know that the sense that this is how we we discipline you know we need our members to be obedient and if this is what it takes then so be it as a sort of counterbalance to all of this 
the book is sort of infused with hope and vitality is this almost subtextual love story between August and Ona. But I, I, I don't know if I'm reading into it, but the, that they're united by both of them being somewhat marginal. Um, she's being seen as having NARFA uh, or anxiousness or nervousness and marginal because of that um, too. And, and And you've written about mental illness in many of your books, your dad and sister both took their lives and, and you've wondered if the Mennonite worldview that we are born sinners and are only rewarded once we're no longer alive played a role in their suicidal tendencies. And in, in Bolivia, the female imagination is the, the first thing suspected when these crimes are reported that the women are either possessed or crazy. And the bishop of the of the real colony in an interview said, why would they need therapy if they weren't awake when it happened because they were drugged by an animal anesthetic? Um, and then, and, and the, the main answer I've seen you give around why a man tells the story is that it's, um, time for men to be quiet and listen. So he's, he's not really telling the story as much as he is, um, sitting on the margins and listening and recording. I guess I wondered if that was, if you saw that, um, the women, uh, in the hayloft talking and August in the corner writing as the, as a corrective or the beginning of a corrective Absolutely. regarding this. Absolutely. Uh, def- definitely. Um, you know, that, that August is there for, you know, for, for all sorts of reasons, but, but specifically, yeah, to record, to bear witness, uh, to listen and to learn, uh, and then to take that and, you know, and, and use it to, to educate the boys, which is the reason why he's there at the, in, in the colony. And hopefully he'll be educating girls at some point as well. Uh, that, that, that's the hope. But, um, uh, yeah, I, absolutely, as a corrective, you know, maybe uh, um, you know, <laughs> untowardly hopeful, but but uh, but certainly, you know, there is um, and always uh, needs to be uh, that that hopefulness. And and I know that um, I'm not, you know, this is just one book and and you know one small part of the conversation. But I know that there are so many others out there, uh, you know, in Mennonite communities and not in Mennonite communities outside of Mennonite communities. Who who are you know who are talking about this stuff and um, and and so it I am I am hopeful and uh, and 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 yeah that is the role that is August's role. And do you know what your next project is? It's hard to I mean you know again like I was saying earlier you know back to my the futility that I have to fight all the time to tooth and nail you know and in, in term and, and trying to. Uh, um, so first of all, I have to deal with that, and then, but I, I, I do have, I, I, I need to create another, I guess, another story where I give myself a task through the protagonist of the of the book, <laughs> a writing task, in order to to make it seem like something I need to do. Um, but, but, um, but, sorry, I'm I'm rambling, probably in an attempt to you know get away from the question because. Uh, I find it so hard to talk about this kind of embryonic stuff and the vague ideas, but I'm taking notes and and um, I'm filling notebooks. And so, um, that, you know, I'll have to circle 
as always, I'll have to go back and look at the notebooks and 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 then see. Oh, well, these these are the things. These are the the subjects or the you know the, this is the story. This is the thing that I obviously need to write. You know, it, it will become clear to me when I go back over my over my notes because I'll have gone you know back to that and back to that and back to that. Yeah. Well, to to leave behind questions around what your next book is about. Is there an, uh, a question that you feel like you're circling that is mm. the result of having finished Women Talking? Mm. Like either one that you put aside because of writing the book or one mm. that was produced by the book that you feel mm. like maybe you're circling now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, one thing that's come from this book, and maybe it's something that I kind of, sort of, you know, vaguely or maybe not on a conscious level knew that, that there, you know, the, the lives of girls and women, and of course, like we've discussed, you know, to, to a certain extent, boys and every men and everybody in these, in these types of, of, uh, you know, um, authoritarian, religious, orthodox, conservative, closed colonies and not just colonies, but communities. I mean, that's my, my, you know, the, the, the older I get, the, the, it seems the closer I get to reliving all of that stuff, going back in my mind and, you know, um, and, and feeling it, um, questioning it, um, wanting to know why this is happening and why we can't, um, you know, if, if we are a family, um, you know, uh, of, of individuals who are attempting to, you know, live in some, um, you, you know, gen, genuinely loving and pacifist, uh, way, why, why we can't attempt to solve, um, some of these, you know, really big problems within our community. I just don't understand why we can't do that. Why we, and so I think that, I mean, I do understand, <laughs> I understand, you know, the, the, the difficulty and I understand that, you know, the need for, for silencing that, 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 you know, that, that the elders and the leaders have, but, but, um, and the threat, but the threat to them, but, but, um, you know, so I think that again, even though I've said so many times, I just don't want to write about Mennonites again. I feel as though, and specifically, you know, the the, the conversations that I'm having about this book with people, um, the topic, uh, uh, again, that 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 what I do next will, um, I'm almost sure, um, have uh, have something to do with um, with the, with the lives of of these women. It was a real honor to have you on the show and to be part of boosting the the profile of women talking in the world. It was a real honor to be here. Thank you very, very much. We're talking today to Miriam Taves, the author of Women Talking. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Nimmin, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. Miriam Taves has recorded For the Bonus Archive, a reading of a poem by Coleridge, from which she took the phrase, All My Puny Sorrows, from one of her novels. This joins supplemental material by Marlon James, Sophia Shalmyev, Layli Longsoldier, Carmen Maria Machado, Sheila Hetty, Forrest Gander, John Keane, Morgan Parker, Christina Rivera Garza, and others. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatitami, can be found on iTunes. 
and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. 